Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. William Lee is an internationally renowned physician, scientist, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments and impacts care for more than 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. He's also president and medical director of the Angiogenesis Foundation, where he's actively researching everything from COVID-19 and its impact on our vascular health to our T-cells, which I am obsessed with. Fasten your seatbelts. This is an incredible show. Dr. Lee, welcome. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's so great to have you here. And for all of our listeners, I'm going to timestamp this this interview because the world is changing pretty fast, specifically with COVID-19. So for everyone listening, we're talking at March 26th at about 11 a.m. And so with that said, let's start with your work at the Angiogenesis Foundation and specifically your focus on COVID-19 and, and the vascular system. Yeah, well, so first of all, I'm an internal medicine doctor, and I'm also a research scientist. I'm a vascular biologist. And together, that actually is what I use to run the Angiogenesis Foundation. And I started in this field called Angiogenesis, which is a fancy word, angio, blood vessels, genesis growth, that actually describes how our body um, grows its circulation and controls it. And it turns out that it, I was fascinated by this 30 years ago when I got into this, is that our body has this incredible circulatory system. It's 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels packed inside our bodies, so extensive that if you pulled out all the blood vessels and lined them up end to end, you'd form a line, a thread that would wrap around the earth twice. This channel, this conduit brings oxygen and nutrients to every single cell in our body. And what we eat, and people are so interested in our environmental exposures, as well as the dietary um, things that we can actually do to um, enhance our health, that regardless of what your philosophy and strategy or research areas, whatever the approach is, you still require these conduits, angiogenesis, to be able to deliver the promise of health. That said, my organization has been around for 25 years, and what we actually focused on doing is a little bit of the, let's say, not typical research organization. Most research organizations take tackle one disease, and they go an inch wide and a mile deep. And what we decided to do was actually to look at the gray space in between all these diseases. And the reason I, I came up with this idea is because I always say I've been supporting the American Cancer Society since I was in high school with donations. And, and we know that cancer research is one of those areas that is well-funded, lots of smart people, more money spent on cancer research than getting people in outer space uh, on, and onto the moon. And yet we haven't made as much progress. And so it's not money, it's not brains, and I thought it must be approach. Could we, or were we missing something in the way we're even thinking about research? Maybe by diving too deeply, focusing too much on the trees instead of the forest. And so I took the forest approach to look what connects all the cancers, but more than cancers, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's. I, I set out this kind of grand mission of looking at what are the common denominators of all the diseases for which we don't have good treatments. And we found out 
remarkably very quickly after we got started in 1994 that angiogenesis, blood vessels out of control, out of balance, actually is a common denominator. So that led to 34 FDA-approved treatments for cancer, diabetes, and vision loss. A, a lot of it's, it was a it's been a grand adventure, but the biggest adventure to date happened last year around this time in March 2020, when we were um, all blindsided by this pandemic. And and it was very clear from the very get-go that this is not your typical respiratory virus. You get a cough, you might get a pneumonia, you might actually need to go to the hospital and, and potentially even get on a ventilator. That All that was bad enough, but we started seeing strokes and heart problems and COVID toes and kidney failure. These are not the typical things that you would expect in a lung disease. And so that's when we jumped into the deep end of the pool, teared out a page from our own playbook to say, what are the common denominators? And that's how I got into COVID research. And, and so with regards to COVID, you say on your website, it's quote, it's critical that we find ways to protect our blood vessels and to prevent their damage in COVID-19. This is where it gets scary to me. Even young people who have gotten COVID-19 but haven't been seriously ill can suffer the terrible consequence of vascular damage. One study from Germany showed that up to 70, 70, 70% of people who've recovered from COVID have evidence for long-term heart damage. Injured blood vessels are also part of the brain and nerve injuries seen in long-term COVID as well as kidney damage, end quote. I read that, I said, wow, there's just so much we don't know about this virus. Yeah, this virus has been a mystery on almost every turn. This illness, let's call it. The, the virus is a pretty simple virus, but it does really nefarious things. One of the things that I did back in March 2020 is I was able to work with colleagues and we got autopsy tissue from people who died of a severe COVID. So these are you know, people who didn't make it. But at the time, the frontline workers were all flailing in the emergency room and in the ICUs because we had almost no understanding of the disease. And so by diving into this tissue, we had people from Switzerland, Belgium, Germany, the US, and we took a, a really a science approach to say, what the heck is going on? What can we see using modern technology, research technologies? And what we found was really bad lung damage. So that was not surprising. But the astounding thing that made our jaws drop in this research, in the first research we did is we saw the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 actually moving from in lung tissue and infecting blood vessels in the lung vascular endothelium so the vascular system got damaged infected and as the blood vessels got infected their ability to remain clot free meaning smooth blood flow became compromised and all of a sudden we started to say aha it was sort of like that eureka moment this respiratory the virus is causing a vascular disease, and that's why we're having blood clots. And because that 60,000 miles we talked about go to the brain, to the heart, to the toe. So we don't want, it's scary, but we don't want to scare people. We want to empower people. And when you talk about blood vessels, that hits home for me. My wife and co-founder Colleen had a pulmonary embolism almost 10 years ago after a flight. I, at one time, had sky-high homocysteine. I've got it under control. And so it hits home for us personally. So with that said, we don't want to scare people. We want to empower people. And so there, there are multiple groups of people. We, we have people who've had COVID 
recovered or, or not recovered. We'll talk about long hauler syndrome. There are people who haven't had COVID and are getting vaccinated. And then you have people who won't get vaccinated or, or you got multiple groups of people. So with all that said, maybe I'm missing a group, but what do we do that in from if we potentially have damage or don't want damage, what can we do? Yeah, well, here, here's sort of the good news. And I think we are, we're ready for, we're all ready for good news. Yes. Um, no more bad news. Year out of this thing. So the light is at the end of the tunnel, I think in this pandemic from a lot of different perspectives. First of all, if you look at history and like, I'm talking about going back to like 800 AD, right? Thousands of years ago, all of these big raging pandemics eventually kind of flare out. And then what was once really deadly kind of, it, it, it tends to, the, the virus and the illness itself becomes rather mediocre. That's part of what evolution does to these viruses. And so, although we talk a lot about variants right now and the scary things about that, I think that if you take the big picture of this, eventually this will, I think COVID will just kind of disappear into the background, kind of like the seasonal flu is gonna be. So we're on, I think that we're on our way eventually to getting there, number one. Number two, the vaccine. Look, if enough people take it, it's gonna be protective for our society. Number three is really, we're getting a lot smarter. So I, I think that some of the adjustments we've done over the last year by necessity, we've become a lot cleaner. People have learned to wash their hands again. The things that we were taught in grade school are now second nature to adults. I think that we've become a little bit more cautious about how close we get to other people. Remember just a year ago, or maybe a little more than a year ago, if you were on a plane or a bus or a subway or in a park or in a movie theater, if somebody was sneezing and coughing or sniffling around you, yeah, you didn't really do anything about it. Now we're, we're smarter, we wanna protect ourselves. And I think diet and lifestyle is starting to rise to the surface because we do have control over our immune system. And some people who were, might've been exposed to COVID who didn't get it, one of the things that we know is that their immune systems, everyone's immune system's different, but so how can we each aspire to make, to be all we can be when it comes to our immunity so that we can fight off not just the coronavirus, but lots of other viruses out there as well. And I think that this is where, as we step forward into the light, that's coming. It's not here just yet, but it's coming. We're going to be better for it, I think. We're going to learn how to actually be better for ourselves. But so so what are the actionable steps, though, if I've had COVID or I want to protect my vascular system, whether I'm vaccinated or not, that so or, or just even understand if maybe I had damage and I didn't even know it. Like uh, we're going to talk about antibodies and also T cells, but I, I'm guessing there are lots and lots of people out there who had COVID and never knew. Yeah. And just enjoy, I want to stay on like, maybe there is, how do we know if there is any damage in terms of are there labs, are there markers, blood work, et cetera. And then just like from a lifestyle approach, like you literally wrote the book, Eat to Beat Disease, you know, what can we do to protect our vac vascular system in a COVID-19 world? Yeah, well, well um, so here's something that I'm telling my patients and the people that I'm actually speaking with. And by the way, I'm doing work with FDA, I'm doing work with academic researchers, I'm doing work with in innovative companies, all trying to find solutions. We're not panicking anymore. I think we're now taking more measured, deliberate approaches. And I'm really glad about that because now we can actually be more careful and less kind of chucking spears and seeing what we actually hit. So, I mean, 
let's start with the common sense things that are available to us now in March 2021. Get vaccinated. In the meantime, make sure you stay, take precautions with masking and hand washing and social distancing. If you're with two people that have been vaccinated in a single household at this moment in time, the recommendation is okay to get together even without a mask and limiting that. Schools are reopening up because kids have not been a vector for transfer in schools. I mean, maybe we should have picked up on that earlier last year because there was a lot of struggle with households and kids. And so, but I think we're now waking up to what we actually can do with kids and kids will eventually get vaccinated as well. Here's how I think about it because I did get my vaccines. I'm done with my second shot. And in a few weeks, I'll be completely protected is number one, all of the vaccines that are available in the United States are, there's a lot of debate over which one's best. All of them are 100% effective against protecting against death. So I'm signing up for that because if I'm not going to die, that's a win, number two, but you can still get infected. So you want to be careful. So how can you be careful besides the usual precautions we talked about? I want to make sure my body's in shape. And I also want to be able to get my mind back into the place where it needs to be because all of us have been so stressed out. So I think that working to build my immune system, we know that stress causes your immune system to go down. So finding ways to, to be more, to, to kind of have a, uh, regain a sense of balance in our lives and lowering stress meditation, focus. One thing I learned in the last year is I've had an opportunity to do, and I think probably you as well and everyone, is asking what really matters. That what matters question and thinking about that kind of does allow us to lower our stress because I've been able to let go of a lot of things that just don't matter that much in my life. I think so our mental state, our emotional state, our stress state is really helpful. And what I've been encouraging people to do for the entire last year is that the pandemic taught us something really important. Now I'm a doctor, like I'm a Harvard trained doctor. So I've got all the tools at my disposal. I helped to develop treatments, medicines. But I will tell you that something I learned and I think the world learned is that in a crisis like we experienced, hospitals and doctors can't always do anything for you even unless, until you're really sick. And so healthcare for the last year became what we did for ourselves locked in our own homes with our families whatever we called our bubbles. And that really brought this whole idea of wellness and self-care to a whole new level that everybody had an opportunity. So for the kitchen, one of the things that I loved doing was, and I like to cook anyway, but I loved reconnecting with my, my, my kitchen, my range top, my stove, my pantry, my fridge. And I had the time to think about what I wanted to cook and what I wanted to buy. So those are some basic approaches that I think is leading us toward being more healthy to build our immune system. And in terms of specifics, I am curious, nutrition, if we want to strengthen our immune system, strengthen our vascular health, you wrote the book, what, what should we be eating more of if you had to generalize? I know we're all individuals, yeah. we're all unique, but if you had to generalize, what should we all be stocking up at our farmer's market or local grocery store? Yeah, you know, I've been asked this question so many times in the last year. And, and because there's no single simple answer, one of the things I did, by the way, I started an online course to teach how to eat to beat disease. And, and it really came out of the fact that I couldn't give simple answers to everybody. It's so complex. But here's the thing. When it comes to food and health, including our immune system, it's not just about the food. It's about how our body responds to what we put inside it. So one of the things that I want to tell everybody is that our body 
it's not about a superfood. It's really about our super bodies. Our bodies are hardwired with all the defenses needed to repel viruses and infections and cancers and heart disease and diabetes. And it's only when our defenses are compromised that we wind up getting sick. And the reason we don't get sick more often is because our defenses are so strong, especially when we're younger. So as we age, what can we do to pump up our defenses. I'll talk about the foods in a second, but uh, you know, but, but you know, this is mind, body and green. So let me just tell you that like our mental state is super important for keeping our defenses strong. What are those defenses? Our circulation, angiogenesis, our, our ability to regenerate from the inside, our, our own stem cells, our microbiome for gut health, our DNA's ability to protect itself against the environment and our immune system, sleep, stress management, regular exercise, social connections, those are all things that help kind of on a perimeter make sure our health defenses are strong. But diet is the medicine we take three times a day that can fortify these health defenses. So big picture first, generalities. It is absolutely true that all the research, all the science tells us that whole plant-based foods, healthy oils, nuts and legumes tend to actually activate and seafoods also tend to activate our health defenses. And we've actually, the research I've done is to go deep to figure out exactly what we can find out, discover about what's in a blueberry, what's in uh, a macadamia nut, what's actually in a peach that actually can be beneficial. What's in an apple a day that keeps the doctor away? And we're beginning to actually get the answers to that. And so, and then food patterns are really important. We know that Mediterranean style dining, traditional, actually tends to be really healthy. And Asian style dietary patterns tend to be healthy. And actually indigenous styles of eating, if you could take a look at how folks in sub-Saharan Africa or even in Latin America, the, the, the simple indigenous diets all tend to be healthy because they're not piling on industrialized foods. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And eat and do it in ways that are delicious to you. Because my philosophy is you um, love your food to love your health. And what I find so joyous, because I tell people I love food, I did a gap year before I went to medical school, and I went to the Mediterranean and Asia, and I lived there, and I cooked, and I actually spent days wandering the marketplace, talking to people, understanding how the food connects to us. And I think that it's so easy in 2021, modern times, for us to basically view food as some miracle solution or some secret solution. We want the we want the code to actually for health. <laughs> the reality, the, the reality is that we now have science in our side, but a lot of the old cultures have figured it out. And for me, food, the first, most important thing about food and health is that food is incredibly intimate. Everyone has their own relationship, but it tells us about our childhood, what our kitchens smelled like when our moms were cooking. It tells us about our families. It tells us about our community. And very importantly, it tells us about our culture. In a place like the United States, Everybody comes from someplace, and we all have an origin story where food plays a role. So by looking at our own cultures and the healthy foods within those origin stories and then finding out what we love to eat and starting with those, that to me is a way to do sustainable eating that's healthy for your lifetime. I love it. 100% agreed. So I'm going to try to drag one more food uh, soundbite out of you, and then we'll move back on. Is there... 
you know, I love how you're talking about ethnic traditions, cultural traditions. And I think what we tend to do here in the States is there's the superfood of the moment. It's exactly what you said, the code. I remember a couple of years ago, I remember every best-selling book was the code, this code and that code. And look, it's marketing and it is what it is. With that said, we do get obsessed around superfoods and silver bullets. And I understand why. Is there a superfood, if you will, that's a little bit underrated? We tend to think of kale and goji berries or blueberry. There's always something that's hot, but I always just love to hear about, personally, something a little bit more exotic that's not in our radar, but and it, maybe it's not exotic. Uh, maybe it's a staple that we just ignore. Well, I love that you're throwing that out there because one of the things that I like to do is to really use science to address urban legends. And and I'll try to give you, I'll try to hit one urban legend, something that's not used often enough because of these urban legends. And I'll throw it out there, something as I, uh, possibly a surprise. So one thing that there's an urban legend is actually soy food. Many people believe that soy actually put, poses a risk to women because of the increased risk of, because it might risk breast cancer. Reason that came up was because some well-intentioned people realized that soys have phytoestrogens, which are plant-based estrogens. And some human breast cancers also respond to human estrogens. And so somebody who is not a scientist would look at that and logically connect, well, this might be dangerous to actually have with women. Now, I'm a doctor and a scientist. And so I realized that when I look across cultures in America, there's a big kind of uh, vampires cross not to have soy if you're a woman who's had breast cancer or risk for breast cancer. In Asia, they tell you to eat more soy if you actually have breast cancer. So how do you reconcile that? Turns out that if you look at the chemical structure of plant estrogen, phytoestrogens, and human estrogens, they look nothing alike. They're completely different. And in fact, plant estrogens block human estrogens, thereby protecting you against those human estrogen sensitive breast cancer. So that's been shown in the lab. And so that's the truth is that plant estrogens are not dangerous for human breast cancer. But what's the proof of the pudding is in patients. It was a 5,000 women study. The women actually had breast cancer already. So the highest risk group, it's called the Shanghai Women's um, Breast Cancer Study. And they looked at how much soy food they ate. And I'll come back to qualify what soy food, what the soy foods are. But they found that women who ate soy-based foods derived from whole foods, so not fillers, not chemical soy, not artificial synthetic soy, but you know the tofu, edamame, that kind of thing, fermented soy. They actually, women who had breast cancer who ate more soy had a 30% decrease in the risk of death from breast cancer, survival advantage. And those women who had their cancer successfully treated with surgery or whatever the treatment is that didn't have evidence of breast cancer, those women who ate more soy had almost a 30% reduction in their cancer coming back. So that's a preventative. So better survival, better prevention. It makes sense now. And by the way, the genistine, which is the one of the bioactives in, in soy, actually cuts off the blood supply to f that feeds breast cancer. It starves breast cancers by cutting off the blood supply by eating soy. So women don't need to be afraid of soy. Now, obviously, they should talk to their doctor if they have some concerns. And there, there are soy allergies. But in general, that's an urban legend where soy foods, edamame, tofu, natto, those kinds of fermented soy products, there's a lot of soy products that we don't have in the United States that are eaten all around the world 
especially in Asia, that are worthy uh, that can actually help build our health. It's a plant-based protein. So that's one sort of maybe food that's got the cloud of an urban legend that, you know, that science is blowing away the clouds to give us better clarity. And then the food that I'll tell you that's kind of a surprise, and I find it delightful whenever I find a surprise, is the kiwi. That brown fuzzy ball, kind of rough on the outside, you cut it up, open it up, it's got this beautiful green inside with the little black seeds and the little white radial lines. Sweet, not too sweet, uh, not eat, not messy to eat, great breakfast food, cut it up, put it into a yogurt. And lots of real practical things you can actually do with kiwi. You can bake with it, you can cook with it. Turns out that kiwi is not only a good source of vitamin C, and it neutralizes, uh, it's got great antioxidant capacity, so your DNA might be damaged. It actually helps to protect lower DNA damage that might happen from, let's say, solvents in the atmosphere or ultraviolet radiation uh, coming in from sitting in traffic on a highway on a sunny day or going out to the beach. Simple kiwi can actually protect you against DNA damage. It's pretty cool. And more than that, though, the same kiwis turns out that actually, so if you eat one kiwi a day, just one, it actually lowers your DNA damage by about 60% by neutralizing the incoming missiles from oxidative damage. If you eat three kiwis a day, research has shown in humans that you can actually build back better so any damaged DNA gets fixed and improved. So, so that's one thing. More than that, kiwi also improves your gut microbiome. And even eating one kiwi a day, it's got a lot of fiber in it, healthy fiber. It can change and improve your gut microbiome in 24 hours. Wow. So what's in the kiwi that prevents or alleviates the DNA damage? Um, a lot of natural antioxidants. So it's I've got ascorbic acid, which is vitamin C. It's got a number of other bioactives, some of which haven't been really discovered yet because it hasn't been, you wanted kind of like an underrated exotic fruit. I mean, look, kiwis came from Guangdong, Southern China that were transplanted to New Zealand, who then grew it up and started shipping it around the world. We see this around, we see it in the grocery stores, but it still hasn't been the, the focal point of a lot of research yet. Interesting, because I would say ascorbic acid, vitamin C, you know, I think people tend to think oranges. So I was just curious, is, what else is in there that's like, that, that's interesting? Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, it's, it's an area, I, I brought this up because it's an area of research. Yeah. I'm, doing. I'm super interested in understanding what's in kiwi. And by the way, you might know if you now pay attention to the kiwi section in the grocery store, right? There are green kiwis, the classic green kiwi, but then there's something called the golden kiwi and a... I, I listen, I'm a researcher, so I'm just telling you the, what how a scientist thinks. I'm wondering what's the difference between the green and the gold? Is there some are there differences in the coloration as there usually are that might give one or the other an advantage for health? I, I don't know that yet, but we should figure it out. Fascinating, fascinating. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to COVID. You mentioned you got your first vaccine. Do do you have any advice or protocol? For those out there who are getting vaccinated right now, whether it's through food, lifestyle, supplementing to help minimize side effects, because there are side effects for a lot of people getting getting the vaccine. Yeah. So here's how I here's how I think about it right now, and this is a little bit of a moving target because we're just starting to collect the data. It's March, right? So it's only been December three months ago since the vaccine was available. So we're, there's still a lot of 
experience to be collected, but you're absolutely right. The vaccine causes reactions. I don't call them side effects because although there probably are side effects, the reaction that we actually get is a reflection that our body is responding in the way it should. Our immune system is jacking itself up. So when I got my second vaccine, my first vaccine was fine. I had a little arm soreness. My second vaccine, I was ready for it because because I, I knew that the second day, the day after your second vaccine, pretty much you get, you, you turn into a sack of potatoes. Like pretty much you get muscle weakness and you're sore. You might have a little temperature. You don't have a cough or a fever. I didn't have any GI side effects, but you know, it, it really knocks you down significantly. And I always tell people, don't plan anything on day two after your your final vaccine because you you might be knocked down. Not everybody has it. Like a lot of people I know had didn't have really any side effects at all, including older people tend to be, I think, having fewer side effects. But some people like me, you know, I got knocked down. So here's what I tell. I don't have any... Um, secret formula for this but i say cancel your schedule for the next day and get ready to rest in a significant way get really hydrated the day before so that your body is able to clear out toxins and cytokines because we know what happens is that when you're when you get the vaccine and you're at the second vaccine your body is jack your immune system is jacking itself up what does it do it releases cytokines it basically sends its troops out to really tackle the spike protein that's in the vaccine not the virus, but the little piece of it, to learn, to memorize that what the enemy it needs to defend against. Along the way, it releases these cytokines, and you got to clear the cytokines. We got to get them out through our kidney. We got a metabolism in our liver. So staying hydrated clears that out a lot faster. And what that also means is don't go out drinking the night before. That means stay away from alcohol the day of. Probably stay away from like drinking a ton of coffee the day you're getting the vaccine as well, because you're just going to dehydrate, concentrate your blood, and then the cytokines are more concentrated. They tell you not to take non-steroidal drugs the day before, and that's probably smart. You can take some the day after if you're into that. But I would say I, I drank green tea, which I know lowers my um, stress hormones and allows me to relax a little bit more. I, I think that just like going to the dentist, if you're tense, Whatever pain you're going to get is going to feel a lot worse. I try to tell people to try to take it easy on the second day and, and also mentally prepare for it so that you're not you're not whipping yourself into a frenzy. Got it. That's helpful. Sage advice. So there are a lot of people out there who've had COVID and are still suffering. We've defined them as COVID long haulers. And I know it's a focus of your work at the foundation. So could you talk a little bit about long haulers i'm curious what, what defines a long hauler what are some of the symptoms and how common is it yeah listen we are still just learning about long haulers now even though, although we're starting to see it reported more and more in the media at the very beginning of the pandemic we knew this super bad infection would lead to some aftermath and any kind of significant virus infection can have what we call a post-viral syndrome. And that means that you feel kind of like crap uh, for a few weeks after, but generally you clear yourself up. We also know that if you're in a hospital after any type of illness, it, it takes you a while to bounce back. I always tell people, if you're in a hospital for a day, give yourself a week to kind of recover from that one day in a hospital because it saps your energy. But what happened is that the pandemic really pandemic was probably, I mean, the, this COVID was probably running around the United States in like November, December, but we really got, we really knew about it in March and April, and that's when it like took off. So 
what we found is that that and when I started getting involved with the research, because remember I told you I was studying acute COVID, the acute infection, in July, we started to see something else really unusual in people who had COVID and recovered from COVID. They were still not feeling well. It wasn't continuous, but they started to have new symptoms. So people who basically bounced back for a little while suddenly said, man, I am super weak. I got brain fog. I can't remember why I'm even, why I even stepped into the kitchen or why I dialed the phone. They couldn't remember where they put their keys. These are young people too. Like athletes are saying, I can't even walk upstairs anymore. People started to have racing hearts, not after exercise, but they would just be getting up from a chair and walking to another room. And all of a sudden their heart would take off. Like if your normal heart rate is 80 beats per minute, these people would have like 150 or 200 beats per minute so fast that they would feel faint and they would collapse. I started seeing people with kidney damage, like kidney failure. I had a patient who had no reason to have kidney failure. He was 60 years old. He was pretty healthy before. And suddenly his kidneys crapped out and he had to go on dialysis. These types of unusual symptoms are not classic for a virus, post-viral syndrome. And so that's when I basically kept on digging into this, like what is going on? So what is going on is this bizarre syndrome where after recovering from COVID, they say you have to have recovered from it for at least a month or had it a month ago, but really it could happen at any time. It could happen six months later, nine months later, even a month later, even a year later, new things are popping up, ringing in the ears. Now you can't taste well, bizarre things. The medical community finally woke up to saying there is a syndrome that we call post-acute, so after the first infection, sequelae, consequences of COVID. So they call it PASC, P-A-S-C. Of course, the medical community has to give it a fancy word that people, an acronym that people don't know. But patients who have been dealing with this for a long time, they called themselves long haulers. And I call it the long tail of COVID. What's going on? We don't fully know yet, but there's three legs of the stool that my research has been able to figure out. Microvascular damage, so continued problems with the small blood vessels in your body, which need to still fix themselves, repair themselves. Number two, some kind of chronic inflammation, low-grade smoldering inflammation, and maybe it has to do with some autoimmune component. And number three is some neuropathy, problems with nerves, whether it's nerves in your brain or nerves in your fingers, there or nerves in your ears, there are problems going with, these seem to be the three legs of the stool of the long hauler syndrome or PASC, P-A-S-C as we're calling it. We are still getting our arms around this. I've been taking part in meetings at the NIH and with the FDA, and all the experts that are being gathered together are admitting that we don't quite understand what's going on, but patients are suffering, so we need to figure out how to get them better. Yeah, I was going to say anything promising in terms of treatment. Yeah, so here's what's interesting. First, how many people who have COVID get this long haulers? The numbers that you'll see published now are about 30%. So one in three people who have recovered from COVID wind up having some long-term consequence, but they're not always the same. And that's the thing that we, we don't have our arms around. We don't know who gets what part of it. And the actual percentage, if you ask patients, are much higher than what the medical people are presenting as 30%. The British, back in May, were saying 10% of people wind up, at, wound up actually having some long-term sequelae. We think that was just classic, a post-viral syndrome. 
But if you look at studies that have been done in the heart, and this is sobering to me, one study showed 70% of people who actually recover from COVID, including young people, including people who didn't really have, weren't really sick, have some form of cardiac damage. So they have fluid building up around their heart. They have some inflammation. So it could be anywhere from 10 to maybe 30 to, to 70%. We don't know what we're looking for yet. We haven't seen it all, the full picture yet, but it's a lot. And if you think about the fact that of the 100 million plus and growing number of people who have had COVID, most of those people didn't die. Most of those people worldwide survived. And then you take, let's call it 30% of those people, peel that number off, crunch that number, and you can see there could be millions of people walking around with some low-grade, chronic, potentially significant condition and right now we're just trying to figure out what that is so we can come up with treatments. But here's a real surprise, Jason, is that as vaccines are opening up, a, a new study, and this is kind of hot off the press research data shows about 39 to 40% of people who are long hauler sufferers, people who have been really seriously hampered by long hauler symptoms in their lives, up to 40% report after they get their vaccine, their first shot, they actually report improvement, sometimes substantial improvement of their long hauler syndrome. We don't understand that. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I go back to the big question of how do we know if we've had COVID? Because, you know, as you mentioned, you believe it was here a lot earlier than we knew. I think a lot of people agree with you. I think consensus is moving there. So there are millions of people who had COVID and, and never even knew it because we also know the antibody tests aren't, exact, aren't exactly accurate. And so can we spend a little bit of time? I am fascinated by this. I am so excited to talk to you about this because I've been talking about T-cells and testing for T-cells, and I botch it every time because I really don't understand the science, and you're here. So can we talk about T-cells and T-cell test and what that means in the context of did I have COVID? And what do we do with that information? A absolutely. Super important topic. So, and this has to do with the basics of your immune system. So think of our immune system, not as a black and white switch, but really as an army of super soldiers. And if you think about like an army of super soldiers, you got your forces, your army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, they all have their own weapons. They all are, have their own skill set, but they all report to a commander in chief. And in the body, that, that immune commander is us, our own, our immunity is one of our health defenses. It defends our homeland security at its best. And just like homeland security, like in the, you see in the airport, you got the people who are just looking at your luggage and going through the metal detector, but there are other layers, deeper and deeper and deeper layers. So let's talk about what this means in terms of the a virus. So we know that ports of entry for a virus where our immune system can block it, our nose and our mouth, maybe even our eyes, because they're exposed. When we breathe things in or there are viruses in the air, for example, we've got antibodies that are generic that naturally are made in the mucous membranes, the fluid in our nose and our mouth and our eyes, a runny nose, for example, packed with antibodies. And so that's a first line of defense. That's like the front gate got good, strong antibodies um, that are generic. These are called IgA. A is an atom. They'll block a lot of viruses, and then your body just sweeps them up and gets rid of them, or you just kind of blow them off into a, a tissue. Now, if the virus gets in deeper, suddenly 
your other super soldiers have to go to work. And that's not just the generic antibodies. It's other parts of your immune system, your innate immune system, that have to look at the invader, the virus. They've got to spot it. They've got to conduct surveillance. They've got to, it's kind of like literally like a security system. They spot it on the camera. They send some troops out to take a closer look at it. They size it up. They can, they project, they take a picture of it and send it back to the, the home team, to basically the commander to say, you know what, this doesn't look too good. I think we need to be able to mount a response. And they send more super soldiers out. And some of those super soldiers that then actually memorize and start to tackle a bad guy that's invaded your body, gone through the first antibody system, is our T cells. T is in Thomas, okay? And these these are part of our white blood cells. You're, you're, when you go to a physical exam, your annual checkup, and you get a blood test, your doctor measures that, those, your white blood cells. Inside those white blood cells, your blood test, are your T cells. Those T cells, you've got T cells your whole life, and they memorize things. They, they don't attack you normally so they recognize self but when there's a bad guy they pretty much take a snapshot of it and they memorize it they put it in the iCloud of your immune system so they're always remembering what that thing looks like so and now now let's say that beyond that 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 snapshot and beyond that killing let's say the virus builds up now you got to actually send out other forces natural killer cells and other things that actually go into the immune system but the T cell always will have that snapshot in its photo bank, in memory banks, and it always knows how to tackle that bad guy. Antibodies will later come up, all right, designed to train against that bad guy. But those antibodies only come out at the very, it takes a while for them to build up. And, and then once you've actually tackled the infection, they'll come back down, and then your body won't make any more antibodies unless it absolutely needs it. But, so which is why we can't always find antibodies to, for the coronavirus. But the T cells, they tend to stick around because they're always carrying around in their in their their phone, their kind of memory banks, what that virus looks like. So when you do an antigen test looking for the virus, if it's there, you'll find it. If it's if the virus isn't there, you're not gonna find it once you've recovered. If you look for antibodies designed for the virus, you'll only catch the antibodies against the virus for a window of time. When there's enough made, and then while you're still fighting the war, and then after a while, the antibodies will trail off. But those T cells, and now we have T cell tests that the FDA has actually authorized, we can now begin to test people who didn't have access to other COVID testing earlier on to look to see if the fingerprint, the photograph of the coronavirus is there, and that nails whether or not you've been infected. I, I love it. And can, can you share the uh, the name of the company where people can get the T cell test that's been F FDA sure. approved? Sure. First of all, I'll tell you, I have no financial interest in the company or anything, and but I've just been understanding it and having patients take it so I can understand the test. The this test is called T as in Thomas, Detect, T Detect, capital D, T Detect. And the company is called Ad Adaptive Biotechnologies. And so it's a company based in Seattle. Other companies are also working on T cell tests, but this is the one that's actually available now. I'll tell you a super interesting story about how I started thinking about T cells. Back in March, in the early days of the pandemic, I, saw, I, I heard about something really bizarre, which is that people in homeless shelters who were getting COVID tests we're finding that they actually 
were COVID positive, but they weren't sick at all. They And the question was like, how could you be COVID positive, but not sick and you're homeless? So these people had hepatitis, HIV, tuberculosis, all the different blood diseases, and they're sleeping on the streets. You'd think they're the most vulnerable and they had been infected, but they weren't sick. And back then we had much less knowledge about this. I thought it must be T cells. It must be that these people who are homeless exposed to viruses day and night, sleeping out in the street, no protection, that their T cells are revved up to all kinds of coronaviruses. And again, this is now what we're beginning to think is actually happening, that if you've actually been chronically exposed to all kinds of viruses, your T cells have taken lots of snapshots. Their photo album is filled with T cells. It just makes you stronger to be able to protect against the coronavirus. Fascinating, fascinating. So I'm gonna come back to this bigger idea of, you used this language earlier, blood vessels being out of control. And so beyond chronic cases where there are serious symptoms, how does the average person, for someone listening, if they wanna go to their primary care physician and say, hey, I wanna get a couple labs, to know if my blood vessels are where they need to be, my vascular system. What are some of the what's some of the lab work people can ask their physician? Hey, I, I want to get this checked out next time, just to check all the boxes. The amazing thing is that the, this area of angiogenesis, which has been focused blood vessel growth, and focused on diseases like cancer, and now COVID, has really been focusing on diseases. And and to look at blood vessels and disease, which is different than looking at blood vessels and health. We tend to do pretty invasive things. So if you want to really check out your blood vessels, you can do an angiogram, you can inject dye and take a picture of all your blood vessels. That's not something that the average person wants to do for their primary, for their GP. Correct. (laughs) Actually, a GP, a really good GP, can actually do a good physical exam to check the health of your blood vessels. First of all, our coloration of our skin is due to good circulation. So if we actually have good skin color, skin tone, that's really a good sign. Some areas to check your circulations actually in the whites of your eyes, like the, the fleshy part underneath your eyelid, you can actually see how well your blood vessels are there. You can also press your skin to see if it blanches. So if you actually have um, your skin tone, if you press it hard, you're going to be blocking the blood flow. So that's okay. So press the hand, I'm, I'm doing this, press the hand and it'll yeah, turn exactly a little bit like white. You press it down, and now what you do is you release it. And what you're looking for is changes in sensation and feeling. So it should be a little blanched, like white color. And then you're looking to see how fast it pinks back up. Now you can do that with a research test like called flow mediated dilation, which involves an ultrasound probe and blood pressure cuff. But there really isn't a simple blood test, like a venipuncture, like a tube of blood that you can actually send off right now. But I will tell you, that you feel better when you've got good blood flow and there are foods that can light up your circulation and help improve better blood flow. Some of them you might be surprised by and some of them you won't be. The things like green tea actually protect your endothelial lining, the lining of blood vessels, really healthy. Marine omega-3 fatty acids, omega-3 fatty acids, healthy fats, polyunsaturated fatty acids, really helpful for protecting your blood vessel lining. People used to say, let's prevent the, the, the blockages and crusting that happen from blood cholesterol. You know what? That's already the horse out of the barn. If you want to keep that lining nice and smooth, having healthy, good diets are helpful. We know that plant-based diets with cruciferous vegetables, um, like broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, um, arugula, 
those are actually they treat your blood the lining of the blood vessels really well but some people might not realize that here's a, a few things that most people don't realize black tea not green tea black tea has been shown to actually help improve the health of your um, circulation now most people think that black tea is from fermented and so you've gotten rid of all those good antioxidants not so there's still something in black tea probably one of the catechins that actually help grow, help keep the blood vessels healthy. And when they've actually looked in the blood, not a routine blood test you can get with your primary care doctor, but when in research studies, they found that black tea recruits your stem cells from your bone marrow that help to repair blood vessels into your bloodstream and it can be protective as well. Wow, How? what about blood pressure? Uh, you know, so blood pressure is a complicated thing because yes, good blood pressure is a result of your kidneys, how much fluid you have in your body, and also how relaxed your blood vessels are, right? So if you want to take a chill pill for your blood pressure, which lowers your blood pressure, which is heart healthy, better for your heart and your brain, you need nitric oxide. Nitric oxide um, dilates the blood vessels. And most people think about nitrates and hot dogs and processed meats, not good for you. Let me tell you, there are nitrates are actually really helpful. Like, how do we know this? Because when you have nitrate from soil in plant-based foods, eating those nitrates, here's something that most people don't know. A serving of spinach, fresh spinach, uh, has got 12 times more nitrates than a hot dog, except that they're not chemical nitrates, they're mother nature's nitrates from the soil. Those nitrates, when we eat spinach, you don't want to gulp them down like Popeye did on the cartoon. You want to chew them. And when you chew your spinach, you are allowing the gut bacteria in your tongue, in your mouth, to change the nitrates that are in your spinach. And you swallow those. And then it turns it into a chemical form that dilates your blood vessels and lowers your blood vessel, blood pressure and makes your blood vessels healthier. Besides spinach, beets are another great plant-based food that have a lot of natural nitrates um, that can actually be heart healthy. And the last food I'll tell you that might be a surprise that most people jump up and down for, they get high five on this when I say this, is dark chocolate. Cacao has not only fiber that's good for your gut bacteria, but dark chocolate has these polyphenols that mobilize your stem cells and improve your circulation. I love it. Dark chocolate for the win. So I started this conversation with our timestamp, March 26, 2021. World's changing fast, in closing. Where do you think this conversation is going to be a year from now? Look, in a year from now, I think we are going to be in um, a healthier place as a society because we've been shocked by every human on the planet was shell-shocked by what, was, what happened in 2020. We are now reconstructing how businesses work, how we patterns in our lives, how education works in a way that's going to be healthier and protect us against the next thing that might be around the bend. When it comes to our diet and lifestyle, though, I think we're all also going to use this as a wake up call, if we haven't already, that we can do healthcare ourselves. And one of the things, by the way, like I, I told you, is I've launched a course. I've decided to create an online course called Eat to Beat Disease Online Course by Dr. Lee. And for anybody, who, by the way, who's on your podcast, if they want to actually sign up for the course, they just said enter Mind Body Green. And I'll, I'll actually give them a special discount because I think it's so important to get out the word to as many people as possible. We are in a year going to be empowered 
by everything we've learned, the silver linings that most people are just starting to appreciate now of what we learned in the last year to be able to make the next year better for ourselves, our families, our community, and our society. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Hope is in the air. Let's do it. Amen. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. Dr. Lee, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Jason.